Well, I want to begin our Good Friday service by reading a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon that will set the stage for our evening together. It's a long quote, so we had it put on PowerPoint so that you could actually uh, follow along and, and see the depth of this quote. This is what it says. God is just, and a just God must punish sin. The great question is, how can God be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly? Then Spurgeon references Romans 3.26, which, depending on where your care group is at in their study, you'll have an opportunity to look closely at that verse coming in the coming weeks. False religions endeavor to answer this question, but they completely fail. The poor heathen thinks he has found the answer in his own terrible sacrifices. He thinks he may give his firstborn for his transgression, the fruit of his body for the sin of his soul. It is not thus that God's justice is vindicated. Neither is it thus that his mercy shines forth in its glory. There is a cold, speculative theology that seeks to put this question far away. There are a few men who scoff at the atonement and reject the thought of sacrifice. But the system that denies the doctrine of atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ or puts it in the background never can succeed. Its adherents may profess to be intellectual because they are ignorant, but they will never convince the masses. It is stamped on nature by God that every man feels in his conscience a craving after a reply to the question, how can the just God justly forgive me, the sinner? If that question is not answered in some way so that it may, see, so it may be seen how God can save and yet maintain his justice, no system of theology can by any possibility succeed. We must resist the tendency that seems to be in the minds of some to keep back this vital truth, the fundamental truth of the Christian religion, namely the doctrine of the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us not argue against this tendency, but let us rather destroy it by our personal determination to preach more earnestly and more constantly Jesus Christ and him crucified. The quickest way to slay error is to proclaim the truth. End quote. It's with this gospel truth in mind as our church gathers together for Good Friday that I wanted to feature the Lord Jesus Christ as our suffering substitute. And by doing so, this is going to prepare us for our celebration for the resurrection you may have already noticed, did we get note sheets passed out? Did you get a note sheet on the way in? The, the, the lengthy title, and this is going to be more of a devotional survey preparing our hearts for communion than it is going to be an expository sermon. The title is this, The Sobering Wounds of Our Suffering Substitute and the Hope Found in His Resurrection. I know for a fact that I've never ever had a title that long. But it's important. All of it's important. And there are two critical doctrines found embedded within these chapters in Luke that we're going to look at tonight. The first is the doctrine 
of penal substitution. And the second is the doctrine of the resurrection. And tonight our focus is going to be, fittingly, on the penal substitution. Christ's death was penal in that it was a penalty when he died. He bore a penalty. His death was also substitution in that he was a substitute for repentant sinners when he died. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, records four truths that show how Christ's death met the four needs that we have as sinners. And I wanted to put these up so this will help us also to prepare our hearts uh, in preparation for communion. The first truth is that we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. And we have all earned that wage. We are all deserving of this wage due to our depravity. We heard a great message this past Sunday which featured it from Psalm 14, which is also reiterated in Psalm 53, which is again repeated in Romans chapter 3. Why? Because God would not want us to miss it. Just as some crimes in our civil law warrant the death penalty when it comes to God's law and his holiness, any sin is worthy of death. Not just physical death, but eternal death without end. Second, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. A perfectly holy and righteous God reserves the right to bear righteous indignation towards sin. It stands against his holiness and righteousness, and it's worthy of his anger. And in the same way, when we look on the news or we see an instance in life where somebody blatantly and purposefully hurts another person and sins against that person, God's anger and wrath is always perfectly justified toward any sin. Third, we deserve to be separated from God by our sins. Due to our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. Not only is a penalty and his wrath warranted, but the sinner also deserves to be kept in isolation from God. Imagine for a moment just a, a, a severely contaminated biohazard container being kept away from a healthy person. It's fitting that sinners be kept away from God who cannot tolerate sin in his immediate presence. Fourth, we deserve to be in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. God's word is clear. He teaches that every human being is born as a slave to sin, the only exception being the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this spelled out for us in Romans chapter 6 as we live in bondage to sin. Just like a POW that's shackled at every limb, that's held in solitary confinement with no chance of escape, the same is true for us. We are held captive to the will of sin and Satan. And these are pretty grave spiritual truths. They're a very dark reality for us to consider. Yet, every person must come to terms with them. They're always true, and they never change. 
And man on his own could never do anything about the dark and desperate realities of his condition. Only God could provide a perfect penal substitute, which he did through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we get to celebrate on this very important day called Good Friday. The penal substitution that was provided on our behalf. What does it entail? If I were to ask you to answer that question in your mind right now, what does the penal substitution of Christ entail? How would you answer it? Think about it. I'm not going to call on anyone. It's my hope as we take a closer look tonight that you will have an expanded and a deep answer to that question. I think by default, most people would answer, well, his death on the cross. And they would be right. That is, that is part of the, the penal substitution. But as I was looking at what the Lord Jesus Christ experienced, it allowed me to see the depth of all that he suffered while going to and while directly suffering on the cross. Oftentimes, we have in our minds this understanding that wounds are physical in nature. And we lose sight of the fact that wounds come in many different forms. The makeup of man involves other elements of experience. Not only are there physical wounds, but there's relational wounds, spiritual wounds, psychological wounds, emotional wounds. In fact, I'm willing to bet that if I were to give you the option on which type of wound that you would rather experience, that most of us would probably, by default, choose a physical wound. I would much rather have to go have Huey put some stitches in my arm or go have Hyun set a broken bone than to have to go see them to talk to them about a broken heart or a severely broken relationship of someone who betrayed me. Those who have been through that situation know the pains. And sometimes there's even a combination of these wounds, which is the case for our Lord Focused on the Lord's passion, it was shocking to see the many different wounds that he received before he even got to the cross. And the outline's in your notes, and before you think that I'm going to cover it all, I want to let you know there's no way. It's absolutely impossible. And what I hoped to do was have an opportunity to introduce us to the doctrine and a correct view and understanding of penal substitution. And we'll do this by way of overview so that when Sunday comes, it will amplify the significance and the hope found in our Lord's resurrection. So if you're not there already, I want to invite you to please open up to Luke chapter 22. And we're going to begin our time by considering our Lord wounded in betrayal. Let's begin in verse 47 of Luke 22. It says this, Luke twenty two forty seven. 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, 
Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and power of darkness are yours. Judas, one of the twelve, whom the Lord Jesus Christ had spent a, a few years at this point now, loving, discipling, caring for, would be the first to cast a wound. And it wasn't a physical wound, but it was worse than that. It was a relational wound. A betrayal of trust and friendship. And those, again, who have experienced that know, just know. And, the, and these, guys were, these guys were intimately acquainted. They spent a lot of time. Yet Jesus would die for all the sins of betrayal through the ages. Anyone you or I have ever betrayed or sinned against, Jesus would pay for that sin as our penal substitute. Interestingly, we see an aspect of God's sovereign plan with Jesus being treated as if he's already guilty. He even asks in verse 52, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? And then what does he add in verse 53? But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. From this point forward is the launch pad for Jesus Christ being treated as a criminal and penal substitute. It wasn't just at the cross. It's starting right here, right here at this moment. And you'll notice something from every point forward in any synoptic gospel or in the gospel of John that you read, you will see that Jesus is harshly treated from this point forward as a guilty criminal. Next, we see our Lord wounded in denial. Look at verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following out at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, 
you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. The relational dagger that Judas had initially struck was only going to get pushed deeper into the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ when he witnesses Peter's denial. His strongest supporter. A man that said that he would do anything for the Lord. I will never leave you, Lord. Vehemently denies Jesus three times, even with cursing and swearing that he doesn't, I don't even know him. Can you imagine the emotional pain from the Lord Jesus Christ when their eyes caught from a distance? Can you imagine the depth of pain in the Lord's heart when their eyes connected? And there was pain for Peter too as he stood there holding a bloody knife relationally speaking, after stabbing the Lord in the back. Yet Jesus would be the penal substitute for every repentant sinner denial of him. Not just Peter's, but yours and mine. Our entire unbelieving lives of denial and rejection of the Lord, and yes, even our sins of denial as believers would soon be nailed to the cross. Next, our Lord was wounded in mockery. Look at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hits you? And they were saying many things against him, blaspheming. You know what's so interesting? When they blindfolded the Lord, <laughs> they said, guess who's hitting you? He knew. <laughs> he knew. Couldn't blindfold him. He could see the hearts of men before even the blindfold was on. He knew before who was going to strike him. And then Mark's account, it says that they actually dressed Jesus up in uh, a royal purple robe and they were bowing down and pretending to reverently worship him. Also says in Mark that they shoved a mock crown made of thorns on top of his head and they kept beating it with a reed, which if you recall from the message last year, I said that was about as thick as a broomstick. And they would hit him on top of the head and say, All hail the king of the Jews. Yet our penal substitute would pay the price for mockers and persecutors who would turn to him in faith. I was thinking, I was even mindful of the apostle Paul would be one such man who would, by the grace of God, be saved by faith. Next, we see our Lord wounded in false accusations. Starting in chapter 22, 66, all the way to chapter 23, verse 25, 
we see the Lord endure a number of different trials. Before the Sanhedrin, then before Pilate, then before Herod, then back again a second time before Pilate. And this doesn't even have all the trials here in Luke's account. There are actually seven. I'll mention those again on Sunday. Time won't permit us to read them. But what we need to see is that in every instance, false accusations were being made against Jesus. And they accuse him of sedition. They accuse him of rebelling against the government. The king of kings, seditious. They accuse him of blasphemy, as if God could blaspheme. Spurgeon says, quote, There stood the perfect man, the son of God, accused and slandered by men who were not worthy to be spit upon. End quote. Made me chuckle. How deep were those wounds of insult? How, how, how deep did they penetrate the, the, the crowds that the Lord Jesus Christ, who he ministered to openly, who he would heal if they would come to them, who he would feed if they were hungry, who he would make provision for. They were deep wounds. And in a symbolic fashion, Pilate ordered Jesus scourged for them. 39 brutal lashes with a, a, a leather whip called a flagrum, attached with metal and sheep bone, tied upon it. 39. One. You ever thought about that? I, I haven't. Time it out. You want, you want to do something later? Just, just stand there and do that. And, and you know what? Um, you know, parents, you may discipline your kids. And um, we see them have a pretty strong reaction sometimes just from, we call them consequences, right? If, you know, that, but this was, this was an instrument of death. This was a lethal whip, a cord. And just count it out sometime. Just go all the way to 39. Because that's what he received. Yet our penal substitute would pay the price. For all false accusers and liars, for all ages who would turn to him in faith. All of the sins that you and I or every repentant sinner could be accused of would also be nailed to the cross. Well, our time's disappearing. And as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table, it's fitting that we would end by focusing on our Lord wounded in crucifixion. As your outline shares, you can see all the ways our Lord's journey to the cross wounded him as he served as our suffering substitute. Not only has he been betrayed, denied, mocked, falsely accused, scourged before getting to the cross, but the pinnacle of his penal substitution does transpire on the cross. Now it was time for him to pick up a massive beam called a patibulum. Weigh roughly 120 pounds. 
He's completely exhausted. He's lost a lot of blood, probably close to going into shock. He can't even carry it. So they find somebody to help him carry it. Also that he could take it to the top of the hill at Golgotha, the skull. Be laid down. And his hands, first on that cross beam, a patibulum, would be nailed to it. And then that cross beam would go into, fit into another piece of wood called a stipe that would go vertical straight down in the ground. And his ankles would be nailed to it. And this pain would only escalate as it was hoisted into the vertical position. And hanging before the crowd, the insults and jeers continued. There's a little sign above called a titleist. It's where they would hang the, the, what the criminal was guilty of. And we know just even from our reading that it says what? That this is Jesus the king of the Jews. That was the sign above him. Gradually it would become more and more difficult to breathe, forcing the Lord's suspended body to push against the nails in his wrists and the nails in his feet in order to catch a breath. And as painful as all this was, the greatest wound had yet to be inflicted. That would last for a staggering three hours. The Gospel of Matthew expresses it this way. In Matthew 27, starting in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of history, our Heavenly Father turned his back towards his Son. Spurgeon describes it this way. Within his soul, there is an agony such as we cannot fathom. Above, there are swelling waves of almighty wrath against our sins, covering all his soul. Hark, that dreadful soul-piercing cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It seems to be the gathering up of all his griefs, sorrows, and sufferings into one expression. Like some enormous lake which receives the torrents of a thousand rivers and holds all within its banks, so does that sentence seem to grasp all his woes and express them all. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At last he bows his head and yields up his spirit. At one tremendous draft of love, the Lord hath drained destruction dry for all his people. 
He has suffered all that they ought to have suffered. He hath given to the justice of God a full recompense for all their sins. He has on their behalf presented a complete atonement. What joy it is, believer, to think that thou has such a perfect atonement to rest upon. End quote. It was powerful, wasn't it? So, so powerful. And so it's fitting to ask the question. More than appropriate. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your suffering substitute? When? When? Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your suffering substitute? You need to know when. Did you? Have you? Or have you been living a life disregarding your need for Christ? Are you in some way tempted to think that somehow, in some way, that God's going to give you grace that aren't going to involve the, 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 your need for the atonement of his son and all that he went through? It's ludicrous to think that, isn't it? If you're an unbeliever here tonight, this is the perfect opportunity for you to trust completely in Jesus Christ as your suffering substitute. And if you don't, let me just say this. Somebody has to pay that penalty. And who will it be? It's you. It'll have to be you. There is no other option. Right? And the Lord has provided a way. If you don't trust in his substitutionary atonement, you'll have to pay the penalty yourself. Ask the Lord to forgive you all of your sin, and he will. Ask him to cause your heart to be born again, to live for him, and to follow him for the rest of your days as Savior, as Lord, and he will. He'll help you. And if you're a believer here tonight, perhaps it would be good to confess times where you have been tempted to mistakenly add something on top of his atoning work or along with his atoning work as you think about your perfect standing before God. May the true biblical gospel recalibrate your thinking so you continue to trust only in Christ and his substitutionary atonement. And it's with this amazing truth in mind that we want to celebrate the Lord's sacrifice and death as our suffering substitute. Specifically, as we now gather to, to um, do, ironically, what the Lord just did before his penal substitution started. The la he initiated um, the, the, the Lord's table with the disciples. And so we want to come together and have communion and then on Sunday, we'll continue with our study with the hope found in his resurrection. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. And while I do so, I want to invite our worship team to go ahead and come on up. Invite our communion team to go ahead and get ready. And then I'll, after I pray, I'll provide some additional instructions just as it relates to us partaking of the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, it's with 
tremendous privilege that we bow our heads together to just exalt you and thank you for the gracious gift of your son and the radiance and the, the glory of the gospel and his fulfillment of the gospel by providing penal substitutionary atonement for us and for our souls. Lord, I'm mindful of thinking of all the ways that I could have been hijacked into believing some other thing or following some other religion or just as Spurgeon said thinking about different ways that I could make sacrifices that would somehow please you enough to give me the grace in order to enter in your presence and that's foolishness it's foolishness the work has been done for us on our behalf and it's been done and executed by your son who was indeed executed and may we never lose sight of the fact that you're a holy perfectly holy and righteous God who cannot tolerate sin in your immediate presence that it must be covered in some way and that we cannot cover it on our own we want to celebrate the fact that atonement has been made, a covering of forgiveness has been made for us through Christ. And we want to do this in what you have specifically ordained for the church. And it all began on this exact night, on a Friday, excuse me, a Thursday evening that would give way to Friday when the atonement was made. And so, it's sobering to think about, but we want to celebrate what you've ordained for the church together. We give you thanks for this time. We pray that the songs that we sing and the way that we take communion in a worthy manner would truly just exalt the radical nature of your holiness. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.